You know what really makes us mad is wasting money on CDs with only one or two good songs. Yeah. Talk about punk. What's up, posers? Welcome to Punk Lotto Pod. I'm your co-host, Justin Hensley. I am your other co-host, Dylan Hensley. And this is the show where we assign our guests a year, and they choose one punk, hardcore, emo, or punk-adjacent album from that year for us to talk about. Today we are joined by Chad Jewett of the band Perennial. They just released their new record, In the Midnight Hour, back in January. And I highly recommend everybody check it out. It's a really cool dance punk post-hardcore it's really really fun record blood brothers inspired yeah it's just really good record i highly recommend it it was included on my uh, top 50 albums of 2022 so far that i posted over on patreon and uh what are we talking about today i'm gonna say this one wrong um this is the 2007 ep is is by the yeah yeah yes (laughs) you sent you told me multiple times what we were talking about, and it did not occur to me until like the day I, when I went to go listen to it that the title of the EP is "Is Is Is." Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I th- I thought you made a typo. <laughs> what do you uh, think it was? I don't. I was just like I was like okay, it's their 2007 EP, <laughs> and then you typed "Is Is Is" twice for some reason. Um. <laughs> yeah is is by the aas it it's also a stylizing of isis which is a song called isis on the ep which we didn't mention but uh yeah 2007 we have previously discussed 2007 a few times let's see what do we do we did um the gaslight anthem sink or swim along with the main ep Ooh. in fact we were doing that version of the show and we did american steels destroy their future I don't remember what the EP was with that one. Must not have been important. <laughs> oh, it was a Trap Them. An EP that I forgot we did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we also did The Fucking Wrath, Season of Evil. We did that with Body Farm. That was a really fun episode. And then you didn't do this episode, but I did. It was Paramore's Riot. And oh, I had okay. our good friend Adam Yo, along with uh, Angie from the Resignating Zine. And then a month later, we talked about another Paramore record. That was fun. <laughs> Double dose of Paramore there. So yeah, we're returning to the well of 2007. Very interesting year. A lot of different stuff, which we talk about. If you head over to our Patreon right now, we will talk more about 2007, where we're going to do a chart dive, where uh, we discuss the albums that came out that year. And of course... Interest- interesting that we've never done any 2007 content on Patreon. Yeah, I think... I don't remember if... We had the Patreon yet when we did the Body Farm episode? That must be it. And, and then no Adam... or uh, You weren't there for that week that I did the one with Adam, so... Yeah, I think we've only been doing the Patreon for a year and a half. I think we started at the beginning of 2021, so... Um, yeah, interesting. We'll talk about the stuff that came out. You can get a- access to that for only $1 at our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash punklottopod. You get access to all of our bonus audio 
There's a $10 tier where if you select that, you get to choose what album we talk about. And we actually have one of those coming up very soon. So be on the lookout for that. And uh, every week I do a new release Friday where I talk about five records that came out that day. Because I give myself a lot of work on Fridays for some reason. I don't know why I do this to myself, but here we are. We have a voicemail line, and that is 202-688-PUNK. And we actually received a voicemail this week in response to our discussion last week about songs with laughing in them. Do you remember this? Yeah. So uh, we had someone call in and uh, tell us about a song with laughing. Hey, not-so-random punk lotto podcast is typical of you, always looking for a laugh and a giggle. Well, here's one for you. The Mr. T Experience, New Girlfriend. There's a couple ha-has in there. It's pretty good. But sure as hell is not good as... I feel like there could be some Madball songs with laughter in them. (laughs) Just like a ha. Oh, yeah. Oh, I guarantee you there's some, like, ha in some Madball records. There has to be. Because they're a joke, you know. Yeah. The Madball mystery caller has struck again. Good to hear I from really you. Um, this was, um, yeah, the least threatening. Uh, <laughs> no, per- really, no, only one sort of not even in a, actually that insulting uh, jab at us uh, in this one. So, yeah, what was we it? Not are... so random <laughs> podcast. Oh yeah, we're always looking for a laugh and a giggle, though. That's what it was. Yeah, but we're uh, yeah making uh, making way there, I guess. Uh, soon we'll I mean, be good friends i mean he definitely didn't threaten to uh meet us anywhere so uh if you want to call and let us know what you think are good songs with some laughter in them you can you can call and let us know we also hit on another idea too in this episode what are some eps that are statements in a band's career meaning like yeah we we in, kind of in, unpacked this a little bit in the episode but yeah, like an EP that came out maybe a little bit later into a band's discography, like between albums that was like showing the band moving in a different direction or like making like some kind of new statement. Um, not so much the ones where it's like it's the first thing they put out or it's uh, the last thing they put out because they just had extra songs left over. If you, if you have any ideas of those, call us. Uh, leave us a voicemail at 202-688-PUNK. Yeah, I almost... I almost threw an anthology of dead ends by botch out there as one of those, but it was, it was the last thing they did. It was, we're done. Uh, it is a great EP though. I kept thinking of little brother by dead to me. Um, but in a way it's kind of a last cause it was the last Jack release for a minute, but I don't know if he knew he was leaving then. Yeah. I don't, it doesn't, that's a good one. That EP doesn't come across to me as being like a farewell. It does. It does seem like yeah. it was just the next thing because yeah, it doesn't do. feel like it doesn't feel like filler to promo for a tour. Like there's there's such good songs, the, and the recording is not the same as the Cuban Ballerina recording. It's definitely yeah, a significantly yeah. different recording date. That's a good one. It's yeah. not a it's not like it's a grand artistic statement, but it is right an encapsulated release. Yeah, see, yeah, it doesn't even quite fit that definition, too, that we go into. But we'll, we talk about it more in the show. So, uh, And, you know, all the social medias, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, we are at PunkLottoPod, PunkLottoPod at gmail.com, and PunkLottoPod.substack.com. And uh, 
I think that's everything. And I, we hope you enjoy the show. here today with chad jewett of the band perennial chad welcome to the show thank you so much for having me well we're happy you're here um for those unfamiliar with perennial you just released a new album in january called in the midnight hour Uh, i think i put it on my like top 50 best of 2022 so far list whenever uh that was in june and uh, it's easily one of the best records of the year. I highly recommend everyone check it out. You'll have heard a sample by now, but how was the reaction to it? Uh, so far, so good. And, and, and thank you for including it on that list. We were so flattered. Uh, yeah, we've been we've been really, really happy and really gratified by how folks have been responding to the record. It's been a lot of fun. It's your second full length, right? Yes. Yeah. Which I was trying to think. I was looking at the uh, the the credits on both records to see like you know who was all involved and everything and for the first one i saw you'd worked with uh will killingsworth right for listeners yeah well of, oh, uh, of orchid and ampere and wolves and millions of other bands fame exactly <laughs> yeah that uh will did uh will recorded uh drums mostly uh, and then uh from there we did just about everything else ourselves just recording at home uh so that's how the first record was put together and then uh chris teddy recorded just about everything for in the midnight hour our most recent lp we did we did a handful of things at home but but most of that was was with chris at silver bullet studios when did you record it was this one that was waiting for a while it was uh most of the tracking was between uh fall 2018 and uh fall 2019 and then we took sort of uh a break to do some of the home recording stuff that we were adding some of the sort of um interludes and and you know uh drum machine programming or samples or or uh effects those sorts of things that that we wanted to have time to just do on our own and not sort of worry about taking up chris's time with all the trial and error seeing you know how that collage would come together and then, you know, uh, COVID hit 
in in sort of uh, late winter 2020. So even though the record was about 90% done, we just decided, you know, based on how much we care about playing live and how much playing shows is sort of at the heart of what Perennial is, we just decided it it didn't make sense to put out the record if we couldn't play a ton of shows, um, you know, in, in connection with that release. So we stepped away from it for about a year, and then in the spring of 2021, we went back in the studio to just finish up some things, to change some stuff that, you know, having lived with an almost finished record for a year, we were able to sort of find the things that that we didn't love or things that we came up with better ideas for. So, you know, that was, um, that, that extra time was beneficial in that way. So, you know, the record was, in essence, three years in the making. Yeah. I wonder, I bet that's a that's a nice thing to have, that, that ability to be like, oh, I don't really like that part. We can actually change that and fix it now. Because in the past, it would have been like, record's done, okay, we're putting it out as soon as possible. Now we just got to play that part differently live. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and yeah, I was... I was just talking with with uh, Chris about it the other day, the co-producer of the record, and I was sort mm-hmm. of saying, you know, the album's been out for for six months now, and there's nothing on it that I hate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, there's nothing there's nothing on it that I sort of groan and go, oh, we should have done this instead. And I think that's directly thanks to having that extra time with it, because I I feel as though we likely would have put it out in say spring or summer of 2020 just because we had spent a certain amount of time on it and so it was time to put it out not because it was necessarily the best version of the record that it could have been yeah. uh, but the version we ended up putting out you know uh, in in the winter of 2022 I do think is is um, sort of the ideal version of, of in the midnight hour yeah tell me if, if this sounds accurate to you but I noticed that in the past, when bands tend to go on like hiatuses, um, there's a high chance the band probably won't ever actually come back together, or if they do, it'd be like years, years later. I feel like the pandemic was one of the rare instances where it was like, well, everyone's pretty much on hiatus for almost all of 2020. Shows started in the you know late summer, early fall of that year, but right, like no, but. I guess that's the the nature of COVID. It was just like, fuck this. I <laughs> I'm gonna keep my band together after this because I am sick of <laughs> this year. Yeah, I think um, you know, I think maybe for for any bands that that sort of needed a break, it was it was in a moment to where you know sort of circumstances led to just having to pause no matter what. So I'm sure for some bands that maybe would have broken up, um, that's that sort of six month break was was enough for for bands to sort of feel refreshed or to figure out whatever it was that they needed to figure out um you know we uh we were playing at, at, you know at the time when we stopped playing shows which was february 2020 uh we we had one show that we just canceled because it was it was starting to look um you know the situation was starting to look pretty grave uh we were averaging four shows a month um and and we're and we're really happy with that, really happy with being that busy. So uh, it took a lot of, it, it, it was a big adjustment to go from from being as busy as we were to sort of, um, you know, not even really being able to practice. Um, you know, all, all three of us not really 
feeling super comfortable, you know, leaving our houses unless we absolutely had to. Yeah. Um, so there was there was there was a pause for a little while for sure. Yeah. Well, thankfully, you decided to stay together after all that. Um, yeah. There was there you... was no doubt. <laughs> Uh, would you say the band is pretty close, though? I mean, you're a three-piece, so I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we are we're extremely close, I think. Um, uh, very, very similar in sort of uh, how we view the world, how we spend our time. You know, we always talk about um, b- being the sort of band that after the show, we're going to be going to the diner to eat pancakes, not you know the bar to get drunk that's you know so there's so many there's so many little things like that that we're all just so on the same page about we're all very similar in age uh so so you know it it, uh it it makes things sort of really um easy and and uh natural for for us um just sort of knowing that uh you know the the way we the way we spend the average day is so similar that you know when, when we go on tour or something like that um we all sort of uh, understand one another, and, and it all it all works really well. Yeah, it it shows. Like I can see it just in like the way. It, it's funny to think of it as translating in the music, but it, I feel like it does translate in the music. There's something about the everything you all contribute to the band. It just I listen to it and I think like these these are good buddies. Like they're really together with this. <laughs> ah, thank you. That's 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 really nice to hear. Yeah, it's um. It's it's certainly the case, and um, you know, uh, at, at at this point, uh, the, the the sort of level of communication is is pretty excellent, and you know, oftentimes we have you know we're we're all uh, huge fans of The Simpsons, for instance. Um, so we have Simpsons quotes for any given situation where we don't even need to necessarily say how we're feeling. There's just there's just uh, a Simpsons quote that we can rattle off and and we'll all know exactly you know we'll all immediately be on the same page about what that uh, signifies or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think I think having that level of of uh, understanding as people, uh, you know, I'm sure that can't help but sort of find its way into the music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where do you? We'll talk about Simpsons for a second. Dylan and I were big Simpsons fans too, so we also did the same thing growing up just like speaking simpsons quotes at each other mm-hmm. uh much to our mother's chagrin she <laughs> she was not a fan <laughs> but um where when did you drop off on the simpsons um i would say that they're always even even with the, the newest episodes um there will always be something that that will make me laugh so i don't have sort of a, a hard and fast answer although I do feel like when the credit sequence changed, yeah, to that sort of that that much more sort of uh, bright, perfect modern animation style, uh, somehow that seems to coincide with with some change in humor. You know, uh, you know, I think that up until I go, I go sort of as far as season ten. I think it's pretty, uh, pretty excellent stuff, uniformly episode to episode. And then, you know, it's 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 tough. I can I can see how it's sort of hard to maintain you know making comedy that's that transcendent season after season and one of the things that sort of stood out to me i was you know we were talking about this a little while ago uh the three of us you know what it is that changed and i think part of it is the sort of era of references that get that gets made seems like a 
like an important thing like the the Simpsons you know when I was when I was growing up watching you know seasons five six seven eight all the sort of references were to pop culture from like the 60s and 70s <laughs> and now it's all references to stuff from like the 90s and the 2000s and somehow that's just less funny <laughs> I can't I can't put my finger on it but there's there's some quirkiness about the 60s and 70s as a collection of pop culture references that just so fit what the Simpsons were initially doing. Yeah. Yeah, the I, I, I reason why I ask is, like, you know, there's some people who are like, oh, after season six, it's no good, or, you know, something like that. Or, wow. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm probably with you. I think up to season 10 is when you're like, man, these are great. Like, just most every single episode is great. You know, you have one or two that aren't. But, and I can watch this stuff up until, like, the 15th season, 16th season, maybe. I'm trying to think. All right. There's a stretch of... I, I don't remember when we really stopped watching the show consistently, um, but I feel like there's the stretch from like season ten to fifteen or sixteen has a lot of really funny moments and funny jokes that I reference and think about, but I don't ever want to watch those episodes because I think we saw them so many times yeah. in repeats mm. that it was just like I ugh, I don't need to see this, <laughs> and I've and I've even found that in revisiting like even some episodes in season nine and like season 10 it's like this is there's a noticeable change there's a drop mm. in the consistency of the episodes but yeah i don't know that 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 change to the credits though like when they i guess is when they went hd yeah yeah that it, sounds right it's just i've i've seen those and it just looks wrong like it's <laughs> it's like this isn't right this is like a this is like a video game where a <laughs> A CG adaptation of of The Simpsons doesn't feel right, but right, and and even the the humor in sort of the visual jokes that are in the credits sequence now, the humor feels so much broader mm-hmm. than whatever the sort of more uh, idiosyncratic sort of visual stuff from from the original version. Um, I mean, you know, again, I get it. Thirty years is a long time to try to be yeah. funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. And especially, yeah. you know, it's a show that has more or less changed hands multiple times to different groups of producers and essentially has entirely different showrunners from the beginning because, you know, how involved are any of the executive producers? You know, how little was Matt Groening even involved past <laughs> season two? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. He doesn't have, like, a lot of writing credits or anything like that, so... Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, just a little aside for everyone. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so with the with the back to the record, as far as I could tell, was was this record self released? Uh, yes. Besides the the cassette was released by Red Scroll Records. Right. Uh, it's, right. A, it's a label out of Connecticut, but other than that, uh, self released. Yeah. So, were you stuck with the really bad vinyl delay issue? Uh, we were very fortunate. Uh, the the company that that we went through, Standard Vinyl, out of uh, out of Canada, actually, um, we ended up getting our stuff on time. So the estimate I think was, uh, I want to say it was about six or seven months, and we we got it within that window. Wow. Um, yeah, we'll see about the second pressing, which is <laughs> yeah. which is going to be necessary sooner than later and we, we do have the order out for it but um, I get the sense that, that the, de- the delays are only getting worse so you know um, yeah. fingers crossed um, I follow I follow Mike Park and he was saying that he put in an order not too long ago that 
the estimate time was like going to be like a, almost a year and a half. Wow. Like that's his estimate, which means it could be even longer than that, which is that is ridiculous. I I would I hate can't to be I, I cannot imagine putting in a manufacturing order for product that you won't get to until 2 years from now. That's yeah. How that's really... how can you pay for it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's true. That's that's a really good point. Yeah, I mean the we sort of had to we sort of had a had a compromise where we released the the CD and tape and digital versions which were all ready to go in 2021. Mm-hmm. We waited until sort of the very beginning of 2022. Um and then the vinyl came out in March of 2022. But, you know, uh were it not for the vinyl, we could have put it all out in November of last year. Yeah. Um not not that that's necessarily a good time to put out a new record. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like that last those last two months are are a challenge unless you're absolutely you know huge. Um, but yeah, it's 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 tough. It's 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 you know making for a lot of difficult decisions. Yeah, it's it's very strange because yeah, you have to you do have to make that call too whether you're gonna be like, well, uh, I can put the music out on cassette and CD now or and or wait till the vinyl's ready, but then. If I have a year and a half delay, then I can't. I don't have anything to sell, so I might as well sell the CD and the tape. Hey, it's tough. I don't know. I don't know what the best thing to do is. Yeah, if I if I was faced with a year and a half wait, I'd probably just put out whatever versions I could for now and yeah, hope that there's still interest for the vinyl somewhere down the road. I mean, you know, I I love vinyl, but at the end of the day, it's just a vessel, and you know, uh, getting it so that people can hear the album is is what really matters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, I don't know. Dylan and I talk about it all the time where it's like the majors, the major uh, companies responsible for all the vinyl uh, delays are, you know, the mainstream record giant record labels plus Amazon plus Walmart plus Target, like all getting their own exclusive colors and pressings of everything. And yeah, we need them to really like show like <laughs> build some more plants. Yeah. <laughs> you know, invest in the True. production. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a that's a very good point. You know, if there's going to be, because I mean, you know, and and there are all these, you know, for, for lack of a better word, you know, the sort of like nostalgia reissues of stuff that came out in like the late '90s or early 2000s nowadays that sort of never really had a life on vinyl the first time around. And you know, on the one hand, it's it's cool to get that stuff in a new format. On the other hand. You know, all, all that stuff is probably easily had at whatever your local used CD store is. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. contemporary artists trying to get their art out in the world are having to wait for some of these some of these reissues that will inevitably be on clearance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The um, I, I just can't get over how some of these major label remaster reissues have happened, where it's like we. Do we need more new copies of Fleetwood Max rumors? You know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Do we need to repress the entire Eagles discography? You you can still buy all of that in literally any used record store in the country. So, absolutely. <laughs> well, um, and I guess the last little thing I'll mention here is so I saw I saw an article you did where you were like listing like records that kind of influenced the band. And one of the big ones that you you cited was the Blood Brothers, right? And you made the comment that uh, there wouldn't be a perennial without the Blood Brothers, which is 
when I listen to the record, I can hear that influence for sure. But it, to me, it's it's pretty funny that that's the band that you singled out on because like they were really really hot for a period in the two thousands. But then it seems like interest like in them like dropped off very quickly after that. So, mm. what is it about that band that kind of like stuck with you? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, I mean, I. Part of it, sort of, most broadly, is just I think there's there's a very specific sound going on there, um, where you know that that band could be sort of enormously heavy, but the actual components wouldn't be necessarily the stuff you'd think of as heavy. So, for instance, uh, a thing that really directly uh, informs my guitar playing, and we'll talk about this with Nick Zinner from Yeah Yeah Yeahs as well. Uh, Cody from Blood Brothers often just uses single strings for the heaviest parts. So instead of like a huge, uh, you know, uh, power chord or you know some sort of you know drop D chord, he's using a like single notes for those heavy breakdown parts, which is such a cool and um, surprising choice to try to make something heavy by by subtracting stuff that normally sort of connotes heaviness. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always found that choice really, really neat. Um, I think the stuff that that band sort of glued together into their sound, right? There's, there's electronic stuff. There are moments that, that have a lot of sort of, uh, jazz at the heart of it. And then there's, there's all this sort of sixties garage rock stuff. That's just sort of, um, in sort of the margins of their sound. And then there's the nineties post hardcore stuff. So I just, I could tell that they were such omnivores with how they approached music and how they translated all these different sounds into punk or into hardcore or, or whatever they would, uh, whatever they would call what the Blood Brothers were making. <laughs> yeah. um, so I always, I always found that really uh, inspiring. I, I love bands where there are two vocalists that are sort of roughly uh, spending the same amount of time singing. Uh, and um, I also really love bands where they sort of create this world that you can answer when you're listening to their records um and i think the blood brothers really achieved that there's a very specific sound lyrically you know i think they were they were doing something pretty consistent with the imagery they would use um you know they sort of had a a, a lexicon of phrases and words that would pop up from song to song from record to record um all that stuff is cool stuff where it feels like you're really sort of um spending time and sort of a world that the band is making. So all that stuff was just was was stuff that we aspired to and found really inspiring and you know um I, I can definitely uh, see that omnivore is is a really good way of describing it cuz I would I would kind of describe what perennial does as as being along those lines and kind of taking, you know, everything in the kitchen sink and <laughs> but kind of putting it under a unified aesthetic very much in the way the blood brothers did. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's um, the sort of idea has always been if we if we just sort of um, sort of give ourselves permission to explore any given sound or any given genre, then it will work as perennial, and then we'll be able to sort of change stuff or incorporate stuff as we go. And there will always have been that consistent thing of, well, sure, this is whatever you know, a post-hardcore band or a dance punk band or, or whatever you want to call us, but you know. They were, they were always doing stuff that was nodding to, you know, mid-60s Blue Note or Stax Records or 
or you know uh, the sort of '90s electronic pop stuff like like Stereo Lab or Saint Etienne. Um, you know, we we uh, we never sort of leave a sound out because we're afraid it isn't quote unquote perennial. In that same article too, you also mentioned like uh, Ornette Coleman and like Otis Redding being influences too, which I don't think is like immediate like you don't like as just like a person like me who just absorbs mainly punk music and stuff like that i may not be like oh i could tell they're influenced by colt you know Ornette coleman it's like <laughs> but like if you really are like focusing on what's going on like oh this is there is like a jazz element to perennial which makes it makes the record really like stand out amongst others yeah thank you thank you so much a lot of that is um especially with with Ornette coleman again another another artist that sort of uh, beautifully uses uh, minimalism really strategically, um, you know, to the point of those those early '60s records where piano was suddenly out of the picture, right? This sort of this mm-hmm. this uh, foundational layer of jazz music up to that point. There's all those brilliant records that don't even have piano, um, and so there's you just gotta look for other places to find the harmony and the melody and all that. And then um, with with Otis Redding certainly our approach to live shows is really really informed by the the live recordings uh, from from Otis Redding in the '60s. Uh, his his performance at Monterey Pop uh, is is something that's really you know one of, one of our favorite recordings is that performance and we watch it all the time. And if you ever watch live videos of us, you'll sort of you'll get what I mean about sort of the structure of how our set starts, how songs go into songs. We uh, we very much sort of uh, build this very carefully structured live set with with lots of peaks and valleys and ups and downs and lots of energy and all of that is just from the school of Otis Redding. Yeah, it's the record's amazing. I highly recommend listeners you all check it out. Uh, it's probably one of the most unique punk and or hardcore records you'll probably hear this year. I, I really recommend everyone check it out. It's really good. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Well, cool. So, let's get into the rest of the show then. So, uh, the premise of the show is we assign our guests a year, and they choose one punk, hardcore, emo, or punk-adjacent album from that year. And before we get to the record you chose, uh, I assigned you the year 2007. And uh, before we get into the record, let's talk about some stuff that came out that year that... uh, was it interesting, important? Uh, you, we spoke beforehand that you, you, you pretty much had no uh, hesitation on choosing what record. So uh, what are some other albums that if I was like, no, you can't have that one, what, uh, <laughs> what else would you pick? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, a few that jumped out were uh, uh, Reunion Tour by The Weaker Thans. Oh, yeah is one that I considered uh, Sound of Silver by LCD Sound System is certainly uh, another one um, and those were probably the, the main ones under consideration the, the self-titled uh, Liars album was up there as well uh, but sort of at the end of the day uh, as you said it was it was pretty instant for me the one that I knew was sort of nearest and dearest it's interesting that you you almost selected uh, a weaker than's record because um, our last guest also almost selected a weaker than's record, <laughs> mm. and uh, we've covered a John K. Samson record on the show before, but 
nobody's picked Uyghur Thans, and I can't wait till someone does that <laughs> that day. Yeah, it was definitely the runner-up. It, it yeah. would have been it would have been my second choice, but I, I, I do listen to the AAS EP more often, and I think it's uh, much much closer to sort of the heart of what Perennial does. You can you can hear a lot of what uh, the what AAS does on is is um, on on our records. So it just felt the most apt. Yeah. Yeah. That make, I mean, no, yeah, it, make, it definitely makes sense listening to your band and that EP, too. I was like, oh, yeah, I see. I see why <laughs> you picked it. <laughs> right. The influence is pretty there. So, um, Dylan, is there anything that came out in 07 that uh, you think we should kind of refer to for perspective? I guess that I would say this is Neon Bible by Arcade Fire. It's a pretty significant record. I'll try and hit some different schools of uh, different genres of music. People who can eat people. Um, the Andrew Jackson Jihad, AJJ record, um, was is a pretty significant record. This is also the same year as Riot by Paramore. So there's your there's your pop punk kind of capital letters pop punk record. <laughs> um, I want to say I think we could get we could easily get into the weeds on all of the different like varieties of metal core, but just know that it was a heavy metal core year. (laughs) (laughs) Um, new wave by against me. That one other, that feels like another significant record that should be called out. That's the, uh, it's the against me sellout record, I guess, (laughs) which is interesting to say considering (laughs) where against me is now as, as a punk legacy band yeah i'm trying to remember of anything in, in particular i guess their uh bomb music industries get warmer would probably be a noteworthy yeah. album too yeah it's... yeah i remember this stuff it's this is an era where i remember when this stuff was new too so it's <laughs> some of it i'm not very nostalgic for but some of it i am i don't know it really depends i guess it was if it was in my lane or not but that's yeah. an interesting i feel like that's an interesting conversation Kind of going back to our Simpsons conversa- conversation earlier about the nostalgia and the selectiveness of it and the ways in which there are things that I feel like there are things that I liked then that I'm not nostalgic for now, but at the same time, there are also things that I didn't like then that I am somewhat more nostalgic for now. It's odd. <laughs> yeah, that, that is happens. interesting. Uh, that there's that Modest Mouse album that came out yeah. that year, and I can distinctly remember. You know, every, every once in a while, the records come out that you sort of you want to like more than you actually do. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and that was that was definitely an example of that for me. Um, I just you know I, I had adored the two previous Modest Mouse albums, and I really had a tough time with with this one. It felt like I think I think sometimes bands just run out of melodies. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this one was sort of a few of those songs just felt like they were in search of hooks uh, and that that in particular is sort of a, a thing that I find sort of uh, can be a trial to listen to when you're listening to records where you, you can just hear the, the band sort of searching around for, for a good chorus on a song and there's there's a handful of those on that record yeah that is a that is an interesting like phenomenon when you listen to a record that you were looking forward to and you're like you listen to it and you're like, okay, I like all the elements. Like the things that make the band the, who they are are still here. The tone, the vocals, and songwriting. 
but if it's like missing some just like that it's the hook it's like if you're missing that hook it it's like you're like on a hill sliding down a hill and you're like desperately trying to grab onto like something and then you finish the record and you're like wow i didn't even hook onto anything i'm just down at the bottom of this hill right yeah and, and that, you know that that 2007 album it, it's a pretty good record but it just has the the bad fortune of following good news for people who love bad news where even when they're trying to be as abrasive as possible it's still catchy it's just one mm-hmm. of those records where you know everything the band was doing worked so well melodically again even when it was trying to be sort of anti-melodic mm-hmm. um so you know it's I, I can only imagine it's it's a nightmare to follow up records like that <laughs> yeah yeah when you have such a like a statement record that uh, you then have to follow up with yeah um well cool uh well let's get into the one you did choose so we've mentioned it a little bit here but you selected is is by the yeah yeah yes So, the AAS formed in New York City in the year 2000. This was released July 24th, 2007, which, if you think about it, that, that makes this week the 15th anniversary of its release. Oh, wow. Perfect. In four days from now, as of this recording, and then probably, what, four days from when it, after is when it'll go up. So, within a week. That's pretty, that's pretty funny. I've, I, yeah. I, I love little coincidences like that. That's our totally, totally by accident. That's our zeitgeist. <laughs> yeah, um, there's gonna be some like stereo gum or Brooklyn vegan article that's like <laughs> the underrated power of yeah yeah yes is is EP <laughs> celebrating its 15th anniversary. And we're like, ah, they got us. They beat us to it. <laughs> uh, it was released on Interscope Records. This is the yeah yeah's third EP. But it was released between their 2006 album, Show Your Bones, and their 2009 album, It's Blitz. The person on this record is Brian Chase on drums, Nick Zinner on guitar and synths, and Karen O oh on vocals. And it was produced by Nick Launay. I hope that's how you say it. Uh, and the band. I looked up his, uh, the producer to see what else he'd worked on. And he goes back pretty far, actually. Yeah. He's, he's worked with The Slits, uh, The Birthday Party, and later... Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, like basically all of the Bad Seeds albums post 2000, roughly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's worked with Gang of Four, Public Image Limited, Midnight Oil, In Excess, David Byrne, Silver Chair, Semisonic. Uh, <laughs> he's an Australian producer, so that kind of explains his connection to 
those specific Australian bands, but um, yeah, very long career uh, with some pretty big records under his belt. Yeah. And then interestingly, uh, these songs were written in 2004 between the first record and the second record. So it was between Fever to Tell and Show Your Bones. So to me, it now makes a lot more sense why this record sounds the way it does, like the rawness and like the harder edge of Fever to Tell, but with like the slightly glossier, more up, you know, high production of Show Your Bones. So mm. it's a very interesting uh, period in the band. And it was released uh, as a CD, a double seven inch, and a USB flash drive, <laughs> which I thought was amazing. <laughs> so the first thing I'll ask is, uh, what made you choose this EP specifically for us to talk about? Uh, the short answer is just that I, I absolutely love it, uh, front to back. I think it's I think it's absolutely brilliant and. You know, a, a lot of that story I find fascinating. Like, I, I, I knew the uh, the story about how, you know, these songs were were from around 2004. They were they were writing this stuff sort of um, on the tours following Fever to Tell, but then didn't do anything with these songs and instead recorded um, Show Your Bones, which is a, a really different sounding record with, with very different content from Is Is or uh, Fever to Tell. And so then they... You know, for whatever reason, they came back around to recording these songs, and it's and uh, you know you don't you don't hear stories like that too often, and it sort of resulted in this really uh, this this really interesting uh, point in their discography. It's a yeah, it's a really it's a really weird thing. It's a really weird document. Like it's old songs recorded after a significantly different record <laughs> in their discography. And then even if you look at at their career and where they would go after this, even then it's released, recorded and released in between or just before yet another significantly different record in their discography because It's Blitz is, is such a different record. It's such a different record from this. Like, this doesn't even point to where they were going there. Like, it's exactly. completely out of time, out of order. Yeah, it, and it, it's it's so funny because it's it's so um, I feel like is 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 very uh, very thoughtful in sort of the sound and the sort of moods that it evokes. All five songs hang together really well. There's there's definitely the most sort of room tone and and echo of any of their albums are is on is is, um, but it's not like they were really doing that at any other point and parts of it are sort of are very raw sounding because you can hear the room so much because it isn't as compressed as mm-hmm. um certainly as it's blitz which is this sort of perfectly put together pop record um so it's just funny that that they came back to these songs and clearly had such a sonic vision for for sort of how they wanted these songs to sort of exist in the air almost um that that really feels like a departure from everything else because Fever to Tell is this very, again, this very sort of tight, compressed, claustrophobic punk record. Um, and uh, Show Your Bones is, is, you know, maybe a bit more uh, more open in, in where it's going and sort of the different ideas in some ways. It, it, it feels like a band sort of trying stuff out in a more playful way, even though some of the songs are, are um, a little more somber. This one is just this sort of very, uh, very evocative moody sort of post-punk record which they never really did before or since 
yeah, there's a garageiness to that first record, like which kind of taps into what was kind of going on in the early 2000s as far as the New York scene. Like there was definitely a lot of like that lo-fi sounding, fuzzy sounding stuff. So yeah, like White Stripes were blowing up at that point. The Strokes had already blown up, you know. So it kind of fits in that lane pretty perfectly. Yeah. And these songs feel like they're written like those songs, but like just such a higher level quality of production, which I wonder if that is, I wonder if that was a conscious decision. Like if they were like, let's make these real, real slick, as slick as these songs can be, you know, Uh, or is it more of like, well, the expectation is, you know, it's going to sound a certain, certain quality based on the last record we did. I don't know. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. You know, I I'm fascinated by the question of sort of why they decided to go back to these five songs. What made them not want to pursue them in the first place? Because you know they're all. It's it's for the most part. I think it's some of the sparsest stuff they ever put out in terms of probably number of tracks necessary. For instance, to put it together, right? A lot of the stuff is uh, guitar, guitar, drums, and and Karen's voice. Um, you know, as as sort of wonderfully recorded and mixed and EQ'd as it is, um, it doesn't have all of the cool sort of uh, synthesizer stuff that uh, that Fever to Tell has, and it doesn't have sort of um, the sort of layers and layers of sound that um, Show Your Bones has. It's this. It's yeah. It feels like this and It's Blitz are the two records where it most feels like they they had a very specific uh, aesthetic that they were that they were looking to sort of maintain for the whole record. Yeah, I wonder too if possibly so like they wrote these songs after Fever to Tell. So there's a good chance that like they were like, okay, we have these songs, do we want to record them for the record? But maybe the new stuff that they were writing wasn't going to fit and so they were like, I don't know, maybe we should just do more of these newer songs that we've got for the record. And then I could see because they played these songs live too. Like these songs off the EP were staples of their live set. So maybe they right. were, later were like, okay, let's get those down and record them because they're good songs and we want them out there. I could see that being why this is recorded when it is versus. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because some of these would probably be an odd fit on Show Your Bones. For instance, you know, uh, like Rockers to Swallow, I feel like would be, would certainly. Um, be sort of a surprise sonically from a lot of what uh, a lot of what show your bones is going for so you know I, I i really respect those instincts of saying well you know by and large this this next record is going to sound like this so maybe these songs don't fit and then I, I really love the idea of well let's make time for them later and make this this interesting five song document that um that is so of a piece and, and is so cohesive sonically um you know it's and this is—I think this has always been the case with the IES. It's one of the reasons I love that band so much is they have such a, such an, uh, they have such excellent taste, I guess. Um, <laughs> and that that really shows with sort of uh, the, the sort of uh, understanding of, of sort of what works for what record. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, I feel like we could speculate. I mean, and all it would be would be speculation as to, like, why they chose what they chose. But I think what is really striking about this EP to me is that it is, for it being kind of this oddity, you know, in their discography and these these songs that didn't fit elsewhere, seems likely that they were just songs that didn't fit. Yeah. Um, 
that they didn't treat them as throwaways. I think that they made a... Because they could have very easily just been like, let's tack on these songs to the our recording process of this record, and then we'll just like we'll pick and choose whatever's going to make the record and then we'll release the cuts that didn't. And they would have, you know, they could have been very, they could have varied in production and, and style. And whereas this EP really sounds like they said, no, we're going to intentionally record these songs this way. And in this, with these limitations and maybe even like, I mean, they could have very easily had like a very set time limit of how they were going to, you know, record them and, and live with the recordings that they have. And, not not build them up in the studio uh right. it they really they really feel like songs that were captured in one go the way they're produced yeah you can hear the performance of the yeah, yeah, yeah as the band on this on this release i think more than anything else they've they've put out you can really hear like, like i said earlier you can hear the room yeah. um really clearly i think the producer too lends lends to that because he like I'm most familiar with his work on like the Nick Cave records from this this era, same. And uh, he actually did uh, Avatar Blues, which I think is probably one of my favorite Nick Cave records. It's a double LP, but it's probably one of my favorite albums they did. Oh, that's my favorite Nick Cave album for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I feel that production with that record to me. Like so, I, I there's a chance too that they were. I think they even said in an interview that they really wanted to work with him because he worked on the particular Public Image Limited record. Like, that was, like, their note specifically. Like, well, we have to get the guy who recorded that record. So there are obviously fans of his work. So he has a very distinct style. Maybe. Uh, maybe. I don't know his discography well enough to know if he has such a distinct style. But um, but he is someone that I remember hearing. Dylan, you might remember this, too. The So he worked on one of the silver chair records from like the mid nineties. It's the one like diorama something. It's the one with like the neon, uh, sign Mm -hmm. as the album art. Yeah. I remember that one. And that album specifically, I watched a, it was like a behind the scenes documentary of the band Zayo when they were recording (laughs) their record with Steve Albini. And in it, the guitar player, Scott Mellinger, he, he talks about that silver chair record and the production on it and all the things that they were doing in the production for that record. He's like, I'm not trying to be like silver chairs, like the greatest band in the world, but the production on it is incredible and the tricks that they're doing in there. So to me, that means that's always stuck out as like, whoever did that record is a really good producer. So (laughs) now I know who did it and I hear it on this record because this record, while the production is amazing, like the dynamics really stand out on this album. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. It's, uh, you know, fr- from the two things I've listened to most that he's done, which are Avatar Blues and this album, um, it, it seems like he's very good at channeling energy. Uh, it seems that, okay, perfect for EA as he's, he's really smart about addition and subtraction, knowing where there should be less, knowing where there should be more, knowing you know, where in sort of the sonic uh, field things should be emphasized. Um, so it... it you know, so that it feels like a performance, but a performance with all these really cool choices about, you know, when something can, you know, when when the when the kit and the kit's sort of sound in the room should be the thing that's emphasized, or when um, when the guitars are sort of uh, sh- should have their moment in the spotlight and all that stuff. So it seems like a like a producer that's that's really uh, really good with those kinds of choices, or really good with uh, with sort of 
hearing what the moment is in any given uh, portion of a song. Yeah, like knowing when to be like, okay, this one, Karen's vocals are going to be real reverby, but then on this song, they're going to be almost blown out, you know, like distorted. I was like, we haven't really covered too many EPs on the show since we've, we've changed format. Because most people tend to just go with an album. I think the only other EPs we've ever done under our newer format um, was a Measure EP and a District 9 EP, which is like a hardcore EP. And so, like, rarely do we get an EP to discuss. And so I was like, I don't know. I mean, it's only five songs, and I don't know how we're going to be able to talk about it as, for a long time. But, like listening to it i was like oh there is plenty to talk about on this ep yeah yeah it's it's an ep that absolutely gives you your money's worth um and uh um you know again you can you can hear these these three brilliant songwriters include this this very um this very creative producer really uh finding all these interesting ways of approaching um what are you know at heart you know punk songs um, and, and turning them into something so uh, dramatic and so so evocative and so rewarding as as, as sort of a, a multiple listen. Do you remember the first time you heard it? I do. Um, it was. I, I used to have. I used to sort of try not to listen to too much before the the record would actually come out. I wanted. I wanted the first time to really be sort of sitting in my car with the CD or sitting at home with headphones on. So I can remember buying it, buying the CD at my local record store and, and just having it in the CD player and driving to wherever I was going. And, and that's the nice thing about this, uh, this album. It's about 23, 24 minutes long, I believe. So it's perfect for a lot of different trips you might be uh, going on day to day. Yeah, and I can remember listening to it and you know, immediately being surprised at how, um, at how sort of minimalist it was or how sort of uh how it sort of tightly defined the sonic world of this 
record was. It was really going for one very specific sound from song to song versus something like Show Your Bones just a year before, which was almost the exact opposite. I feel like every song was sort of trying out new approaches and new sort of collections of instruments and new moods. This was sort of uh, sort of this this twenty minute almost you know mini suite of uh, these sort of garage slash post punk songs, and I just instantly loved it. I thought it was just the coolest thing. So this was something that you were aware of before it even came out. Yes. Yeah. So you were anticipating. That's cool. That's cool being in that that zone because there is something about like knowing something's coming out where you're just like, oh boy, I can't wait. Oh, that's going to be so good. And most of the time it is, but then occasionally you get one, you're like, oh, darn it. But uh, <laughs> I always feel like there, this may not be this release for you particularly, but like the idea of like the first new thing to come out after you've become a fan of a band. Yeah. is usually like the thing that makes you like, that's, that's mine. That's the one for me, you know? This would have been the second because yeah. I, you know, I think I think like like many people, I found them when Fever to Tell sort of uh, blew up, and then I was a fan and, and anticipating Show Your Bones, and, and and really really liked it. But it is it is an album that um, takes takes some time to figure out. It's it's an album that, that definitely requires sitting down with, um, and you know um, we all we all really liked that record, and this is is was definitely the album that felt like it was just it was just doing all this stuff that that was that i really really loved and sort of it's it's uh approach to the kind of music it was making was was really really uh really really struck me and it's funny because i didn't until researching the the ep i didn't realize the um the producer connection with uh abattoir blues by nick cave but sort of a similar thing of of just sort of elevating a certain kind of scrappy punk music to sort of high art mm-hmm. um it's a it, it, was, it was sort of that for me it was this you know, this uh this very stripped down garage punk thing that was also just uh so poetic in its own singular way dylan uh take me on your yeah yeah yes journey where when did you first become aware of them did you know this one it's interesting i didn't know this one um because this came out at a time where I would have been paying probably the most attention to them. Maybe just before. Um, maybe that's why. Maybe this slipped by just because I wasn't super aware of them. Um, 2007 feels like I would have been, though. Yeah. Because um, we definitely had... I, we had a friend who was into them who was, like, really into Fever to Tell. Um and I definitely remember having conversations with her about that record and um, listening to some of the, some of it, if not the whole record. I really, for me, like though the the first Yeah Yeah Yeahs record, I really significantly, distinctly remember listening to was It Splits. Um, I think I I feel like I must have had just like scattered songs um, <clears throat> from Fever to Tell from Show Your Bones just kind of a sampling of the band prior to that record. So that's the one I, I remember listening to it in, in college and being like, whoa, that, that's different. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I never had... I, the thing is that the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs are... It's interesting. They're such a... I feel like they're a really, really significant band for... 
I guess for our generation, I would say millennials specifically, really kind of across the whole generation, um, that they were an important band or that everyone was aware of. I think they, they blew up right at the right time to be a band that older millennials would have been listening to, would have really been the ones to make popular, and younger millennials, where I kind of land uh, in that generation, would have been very aware of them. Um, but I don't think that I I never had a yeah, yeah, yes phase. Um, it's because it's not a phase. <laughs> maybe that's it. <laughs> maybe that's it. Maybe you're just either a fan or you're not. And I guess... <laughs> Nothing ever, nothing ever tipped me, tipped the scales for me to go, I'm a fan. And I, I think I've just only ever been an appreciator of, of songs in their discography. Yeah, I think, I think we discovered them at the same time. Like, my earliest memories of listening to them was specifically, like, seeing some of the music videos. We may have been at a friend's house and watching, like, Fuse and maybe some Yeah videos came on. And then like really maybe like really liking that song and then going home and watching the video again on YouTube, and I, Dylan mentioned this in our we have a little group chat, um, but uh, our our youngest brother who is he's quite a few years younger than us he was probably three or four when we were watching the video for Gold Lion, and he spent he wa- he watched it intently and started like imitating Karen's movements throughout the whole. Music video, and it was very funny just to like watch him dancing along to what she's doing, and just like doing that back and forth. It's like, oh wow, look, he's really <laughs> he's studying it and imitating it. <laughs> I think that is that is my earliest, most distinct memory of the AAAS. That's yeah. that's the memory that I think of when I think of that band. There's two that I think of. It's that one where he's doing that, where he's just like a four year old imitating Karen O. Uh, in the Gold Lion video. The second distinct memory that comes to mind when I think of this band, and I think this is more of a universal experience with this band in some way. I've gotten this impression, but in college, for some weird reason, they had a karaoke event in the cafeteria during dinner on like a weeknight. (laughs) It was just like some kind of like student activities thing where they were like, let's have karaoke in the cafeteria. Um, And this, I remember the weird girl, the quote unquote weird girl at (laughs) my little Christian college (laughs) Um, singing maps on karaoke. And I feel like seeing someone sing maps on karaoke is uh, something that everyone who's aware of the AAS has possibly done. (laughs) It just, that feels quintessential to the band. Like that's that one song that everyone knows. And you just know someone who was like super into it. (laughs) It really is one of those. I mean, it's, it's an iconic song for its era. Certainly in, in sort of a mini era that had a bunch of those, Mm. um, you know, this is right around the same time as Mr. Brightside. Right. So yeah, it's, you know, um, it is funny that you had this this era where a lot of bands were going for some version of the sound, um, and then you could you could find like the really gifted songwriters within within that larger sort of mini movement that that could come up with 
something like maps, right? That is, I mean, genuinely an incredibly moving and uh, and sort of unique song. Um, yeah, it's. I think that that uh, it's it's funny. I can remember hearing maps and being really taken with it and finding it really beautiful, and then checking out the rest of the record and going like, oh, they also do this. They also do this. <laughs> this really. Uh, this really. Uh, very cool, very stylish garage rock thing that I was also so into at the time. So it was just this this perfect band that was that was capable of all this, uh, you know, that, that, that was capable of all this sort of uh, very very stylish, witty punk rock, but could also be so earnest and so romantic. And and you know, it's it's when you can find bands that can that can pull off both of those registers. That's that's pretty special and pretty uh, pretty rare. Yeah, like it's a song that I was talking to another friend, and he's like, you know, I've never really listened to the AES. I know one song. And I was like, was it Maps? He's like, yeah, that's the one I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's like the one that makes its way beyond the band. Like it, it, it becomes more of a part of culture than necessarily just a part of the band's discography, you know? Sure. oh they can also do this light bulb going you know across but like even I feel like every single record they've ever put out is that it's like oh they can also write electropop like perfectly or (laughs) or they can even I don't really know what Mosquito is as far as what that record is supposed to sound like is like what they're going for but even then I was like this is just like art rock to me so they can just be purely experimental. Yeah, it's yeah. They're, they're one of those bands where you know the amount of the amount of sort of tools available to them are, are seemingly endless. They're able to make so many different sounds work and still sound like yeah, yeah, yeah's while also being surprising. Um, it's uh, it's pretty unique. I mean, I, I think they're I think they're an enormously underrated band to begin with, and I think that that's their most underrated quality. Yeah, for all of the like legendary artistic you know creative bands occupying like the indie i like like the music the music the music fan like the pitchfork music fan like the the radio has the greatest band ever uh also um arcade fire was like the perfect band too and like those type of like music types you would think that the AAS would also be one of the other ones where they're like greatest band of one of the greatest bands of all time. But I feel like they're even undervalued in, in the audience who would be most interested in them. 
Well, it's because it's a woman. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's definitely there definitely is that there's that glass ceiling. I, I it's really obvious on this band. Like, I feel like they they had the reason the one i feel like maybe the reason the one song that everyone knows is like the most it's kind of a fake out it's like they don't have a whole lot of songs that sound like that it's it's such a romantic like it's kind of a quieter song and i think is more of what people expect from a woman in indie rock doing garagey music they don't really want to hear her yelp and scream and be really sexual, be really expressive. Um, yeah, just definitely. Uh, there's definitely some sexism that I've I've noticed that has limited their appeal. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that there's there's there is sexism that sort of informs that that sort of attitude about what gets uh, what gets counted as as this sort of or, or how bands get appreciated. So it's something like you know um, you you mentioned. Uh, Radiohead, right? In the way that sort of that band gets thought of as genius, mm-hmm. um, and and there doesn't there doesn't seem to be nearly enough uh, critical appreciation for sort of uh, the brilliance and range of what Karen O does as a vocalist and a lyricist and a performer. Um, you know, and, and I do think it's true that um, there are so many yeah yeah songs that are sort of enormously catchy and so so uh so ripe to be hits but they're also subversive um and i think that that's uh perhaps for that reason they're overlooked and and i also sometimes have the suspicion that um that it's that oftentimes music that's fun doesn't get its share of appreciation as art so for instance you know radiohead has has its share of songs that are sort of instantly likable, but a lot of their music is work. Mm-hmm. A lot of their music is, is stuff you have to sort of uh, take time with to appreciate the textures and the tension and sort of the interesting studio choices. Um, and, and I think for whatever reason, for a very long time now, stuff like that, for whatever reason, gets gets most quickly categorized as quote-unquote brilliance or you know this is a great work of art because it's challenging in this specific way and the ways in which the IAs are surprising or challenging or 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 present any number of sort of new sonic ideas um i think i think there's there's sexism in there and and um, perhaps even connected to that is it's it's music you can dance to and i think there's a whole other history of of the way that uh, critical appreciation of music you can dance to has been lacking, and often for uh, for pretty lousy reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, even just the way, like, it goes all the way back to how like disco was treated. You know, it was like that's dance music, written and performed predominantly by you know people of color and you know LGBT and you know women and you know it's just like not not cishet men <laughs> and like it got trashed and it's this like it's it's fun too so that also adds to the like the fun aspect of things not being taken seriously so yeah, dylan and exactly. i uh, dylan and i have also always said that like punk and like all of its like offshoot 
uh, subgenres. We've we've we felt like there is this lack of critical positivity. I feel like punk gets looked down on by the the tastemakers or the uh, or the type of people who like just to be like these are genius level artists. You know, like to really bring those artists up. Punk gets like eh. It's it's uh, I gave it a a, a five out of ten. Because it's just a punk record. It's like, well, it was fun, had really good melodies. Sometimes they're innovative, but not always. Doesn't innovation doesn't automatically make it better, <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh yeah, I don't know. I agree. It's it's. I yeah, guess it's I, just I, I, I certainly I certainly think that's the case, and I think that um, you know, I, I think I think there's something to be said for uh, for for music that gets you to respond somehow. If, it, if it's music that gets you wanting to sing along or it's music that that makes you want to dance or you know there's um i i think that that specific way of connecting with music is is uh underappreciated in criticism perhaps because it's a little harder to write about it's maybe a little a little bit intangible but i also think there's there's just again there's this there's this very conservative old straight white guy attitude towards uh towards art that that doesn't seem to prize you know uh music you can move to or or music that's sort of uh, kinetically exciting the way that dance music or punk music um uh are, are so good at when they're when they're great um going back to the ep itself um they did something pretty interesting with the promotion for this vi- for this album so they recorded a series I, I, basically the entire EP I believe they recorded music videos for every track on this EP and I think there's there's two versions of the videos right like there's live versions and then there's versions with the music dubbed over it I think that's how it's written down um, I watched the live one um, they did uh, they did two recording sessions I think it was like, posted as we're filming a music video um, everyone is wearing kind of like a costume like these masks and then I think something else, like their tops or something too, or something else. And they did two performances. One performance was like mixed gender, but then the other performance was the only women, which I thought was very interesting. And then they recorded those performances and made videos out of them. And I was already enjoying these songs, but watching the live performance of these songs too, I was like, oh, these are in- incredible. Like... <laughs> the dynamics show even more in a live setting because they're like playing with how to play you know it it gave me a whole new level of appreciation for these songs yeah definitely i haven't i haven't seen those videos interestingly enough um i there's a couple of these songs that were on a live dvd that they put out i think right like during the touring for or was filmed during the touring for fever to tell um the performance of Rockers to Swallow especially stands out to me as just being uh, just so perfect. Um, yeah, and you get the sense that these were either written on tour or were written in reaction to playing so many shows, which um, I always I always love when bands do that when they're sort of writing with with performance in mind um, and that can, that can have a really cool effect on how songs are put together. And you can really feel that on these songs that these were ones that were either created as part of a tour or with playing live in mind 
So I actually found the note that I was specifically thinking of. So the band made a live film to accompany the EP with co-directors K.K. Barrett and Lance Bangs. It was recorded in night vision at Glasslands Gallery in Brooklyn. The band played two sets that night to 100 fans each time, the first for a mixed audience and the second for females only. There will be two filmed versions of lead track Down Boy, one live and one EP to audio. Three of these live videos and EP audio versions of Down Boy have been uploaded to the official YouTube channel. Yeah, so that's what they did. Okay. Hmm. I'll have to watch this. They're amazing. Like, I watched them out of order so you can see Karen's, like, costume changing throughout the set. So it's like, oh, she's got a veil on. Oh, that's interesting. You know, like, so... And then she's, like, got different jumpsuits on over top, so it kind of, like, changes from each performance. And But just, like, watching her, because I've never seen them live. I've really seen music videos. I've never watched any live footage. And, like, watching this, I was like, if I went to a YAS show, this would probably be the one of the greatest live shows I've ever seen. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's that's another thing that I just adore about this band, um, is, is watching the live videos. It's, it's clear they care a lot about the live show as a thing that actually matters, that, um, you know, that's not just part of promoting a record or, or whatever. Um, and that there's so much personality and and drama and creativity again it's another one of those bands where they they have very successfully created a world that is sort of the music in the live show of yeah yeah yeah's and you can sort of pretty instantly imagine it once you've watched a few live uh videos or, or listened to the records um yeah i it's i love that they're a band that takes playing live as seriously as they clearly do have you ever seen them live not in person i've mm. I've watched hours and hours of videos, uh, <laughs> but I've yet to be lucky enough to see them live. So they it's worth mentioning, um, they have a new record coming out this year. I believe it's September is when it's coming out. First song out is, it's interesting. It, they're doing something different again. It's a very good song, but yeah, they're going, they're going another different route, which is cool. Um, but like seeing this footage, I'm like, what are they doing to tour for this? Because I might have to go like, even as not someone who would classify themselves as like a massive fan of the band, like I like enough of their discography to be have a really good time, and I bet the performance is amazing. So, sure, let's see where they're coming. You know, I don't, I don't exactly. know. I, have, I don't know if I don't know if they've announced anything as far as live shows or not, but I will be keeping my eye on it for sure. I want to say they have some New York dates and some LA dates. Sounds right, <laughs> Dylan. But I, I, I'm sure some. I'm sure a, a larger tour will will follow yeah. that could be just covid precautions too like just we'll just do a couple of the first you know yeah that makes sense to me <laughs> are there any tracks you want to talk about specifically well um the song that's that is sort of the reason that i immediately thought of of this as as something good to talk about in relation to perennial is the opening song rockers to swallow um and in particular uh the things that were standing out to me were, were were Nick Sinner's guitar playing, which, especially on this song, for, for like half the song, he's treating his guitar as a percussion instrument. <laughs> um, he's doing a lot of mute strumming, um, you know, um, so it's not even, he's not even sort of playing riffs or chords. He's literally just muting the strings so that the main thing coming out of his amp is just that, that, that sort of very bassy rumbling sound of... of a guitar being strummed without any notes being played. And then oftentimes when he does play, it's again, these, these notes on single strings. 
and all that stuff was just uh, massively sort of uh, inspirational and foundational to me as a guitar player in general, and certainly how I how I approach perennial, um, knowing when not to play or knowing when mute strumming or or feedback or a single note is going to be more interesting or more dramatic than the loudest, heaviest, you know, busiest thing I can play. Um, so that was that was something that I sort of wanted to uh, wanted to celebrate as being so important to us as a band. And it's a similar thing with with Carano's vocals on this one because it's a three piece and because this is a particularly sparse recording. Uh, her vocals are responsible for even more of sort of the sonic storytelling than they would be on sort of more uh, filled out, more sort of heavily produced stuff. So she often sings lines in ways that sort of operate as melodies and bass lines. They sort of, they, they lock into the drums in these really, really interesting ways. Uh, there's, there's, there's such a great attention to groove, even when these songs are sort of at their, at their most sort of four, four on the beat. Um, so it's just so cool what what that song is able to do with with really minimal ingredients. Yeah, that that to me is the best song on here. It's my favorite track on here. It sets the tone for everything. Um, yeah. Well, kind of. There are some interesting moments though, like that are slightly different from that. It's so like Down Boy. Like she, Karen changes her singing style almost completely from her performance in Rockers to Swallow, which was is like a gnarly kind of. She's just like yelling and doing lots of like and yeah. <laughs> panting into the microphone, and it's a very intense, loud performance. But Down Boy has it's like she's singing softer, it's a little cleaner. She's like focused more on the melody than as like the just for impact. Yeah. So yeah, she her range is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I, I think it's sort of true for all three of them. I sort of wonder. I'm fascinated by three pieces like this, particularly when, particularly when it's sort of vocals, a melody instrument, and drums. It seems like all three players in Yaas find ways to make their instruments um, do things that their instruments sometimes don't do. So, Karen, a lot of those sort of um, sort of non-melody parts, where it's not the verse or it's not the chorus, but she's coming. Coming up with all these cool vocal riffs that are so memorable, or you know, um, like Brian Chase often leans towards sort of jazz drumming, but he knows when to do sort of a punk beat in an interesting spot where it needs to sort of accelerate instead of do something a little more circular. You know, it's uh, it's just really cool to see all three of them navigate. All right, there there are three of us, and and we have to uh, we still have to have this be fully engaging to sort of all the different you know, parts of our brains that light up when we're listening to a song. The ways, the different ways three pieces work are interesting. There's, it's funny how many different approaches. I feel like you can have like, you can have like your maximalist, uh, you know, guitarist who just like, um, I mean, I'm thinking like Bob Mould is like kind of the, the example that, yeah. of just being like, well, I'm playing rhythm and lead. <laughs> and always right. all the time and always filling all of the space. And I yeah, mean Dinosaur Jr. too jumps jumps to mind for that. Yeah. This that same idea. Or you can have your like I'm barely going to play the guitar and it's gonna come in in all of these little 
nooks and crannies of the song and do these interesting little things it's it's surprising because i mean like either way either way you approach it either minimal or maximum maximal you you don't have anything to lean on you can never stay in the middle i guess yeah you don't have a rhythm guitarist who can you know keep things going you don't have a you know maybe going back to jazz and uh, you know you don't have the piano comping and and keeping the harmonic progression going you don't have you know there's no padding it's it's all rhythm and melody yeah exactly yeah and it's i think uh i think i think the way that the yeah 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 seem to uh seem to sort of figure out that equation is is um it's it's very song oriented um it's i mean this is the band that sort of uses the quiet loud moves in in really really striking ways um and uh you know there there's so many moments where where things will pull back so that it's just the drums or it's just a, a bit of echoing guitar or something like that so that again you know the they're a band that knows all right there are three of us so if we want particular moments to be really dramatic or really loud or really captivating it means that we're gonna have to be smart about how we sort of use the the collection of ingredients we have so that you know we're able to sort of do do the stuff that we need to do at any given moment to sort of move the listener i I found it really interesting too that there's just as far as credits go there's no actual bass work on the record there may be some like buried in there but like he's not credited as a the bass performer on the album he just guitar and synth, yeah. And have have they ever utilized bass like that? I mean, I'm sure they probably have in songs, but as their main writing components. I'm not sure if a bass guitar has ever really showed up. Sometimes the frequencies that like a synthesizer will occupy will be roughly the yeah the the lower half of a bass. Um, I I know that he Nick also sometimes will run his guitar through a guitar amp and a bass amp for certain parts. Yeah. Because sometimes, you know, the guitar is, is often sounding very full, um, mm-hmm. and it's for that reason. I also feel like on this record in particular, the low end of the drums is really being emphasized. So again, they're they're finding they're finding really sort of cool ways of, of sort of filling out where a bass would be without just you know recording bass that they can't do live or yeah. without sort of overusing an octave pedal or, or something like that. <laughs> the way that. You know, uh, for instance, you know, Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes. That works the way it does because Jack White uses an octave pedal during the verse. So it sounds like mm-hmm. a bass guitar. Um, I don't really... I mean, there's a couple times I can think of where the AAs do that, but it's it's nowhere near as common, and I don't think it's quite used the same way. No, Which nothing a- that I've heard strikes me as being that very typical, very typical, like, two octave down... Yeah fake bass you know double <laughs> basically just double tracked guitar sound that's so weird and certainly is like suited to very specific genres of music but i can't imagine it working consistently in in their sound yeah i get the sense that they're a band that loves the idea of here are our options we're gonna just be creative with those options instead of sort of adding stuff to make it easier or more uh uh so that we, that we can more quickly say, here's the bass part. They uh, they seem like a band that would rather find uh, a, a creative solution than to just sort of turn on a guitar pedal. Yeah, or just overdubbing a bass part that you know. Exactly. 
just because it, there's supposed to be a base in a rock band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's there's no there's no lack of low end on this record at all. So it no. You can get a, they can get away with it and they came up with really creative ways to do it. I feel like I feel like the song that probably featured the most synthy material is probably Down Boy cuz I feel like it's got a lot of different. Like I think it starts with like a synth line. Yeah. And, and then like has that cool like almost organ sounding synth later in the song. And I'm sure in other songs it's being used kind of as to backline. Like you, you hear a, like a glitchy little synth in Kiss Kiss, but um, it's not like the dominant instrument. Yeah, it's it's really yeah, cool. Like, like all of these songs, like I have something to say about all of these songs. Like they're all fantastic and do something different and yet maintaining that yeah, yeah, yeah sound. Yeah, for sure. And I think overall it's a record that's, you know, I think it's them at their most sort of stylistically post-punk, but they do something that post-punk kind of rarely does, in my opinion, which is that it's actually sort of tuneful and catchy. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of, uh, it reminds me of, like, Susie and the Banshees. Uh, yeah. 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 It, and, again, going back to fun, <laughs> yeah. fun and danceable, um... Yeah, because a lot of times, like, you go, you listen to a post-punk record, and it's like, oh, we're going dour, barely melodic vocals. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah, post-punk is often, it's often music to be appreciated more than it's necessarily music (laughs) to be enjoyed. (laughs) Um, Maybe I'm going to get myself into trouble for saying that. Um, (laughs) There there are certainly, there there are many, many exceptions to that, but... yeah. um, Oh I yeah, think yeah. I, dour is certainly an adjective that I think would would describe a whole lot of that. Uh, you know, seventy nine to eighty three yeah. uh, era of yeah. of uh, punk music. And I think it was designed that way too. So it's oh yeah, it's achieving what it sounds like. So it's their goal. You know, everybody was trying to do Joy Division, and um, and then everybody else was like, well, let's just do Fun New Wave. <laughs> right. Which even Joy Division was like, let's do Fun New Wave 2. And <laughs> when they became New Order. So. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a really cool release that I, it's definitely like a hidden gem, I guess. Like, it's an EP and most people don't go to the EPs to listen to. But it's, to me, this feels like a, a key release in their discography. Like, I think it's as, I guess as far as mainstream impact is not as important as the LPs but as far as just pure quality of music and what they're doing here I think it sh- it should be just as important to the discography like if you're going to say here's the essentials all the LPs and this should be like the main main ingredients they have other EPs too that are yeah I I think out of their really out of their discography everything I think I've I have heard all uh, their first three records, at least the majority of those records, this is the one that I most consistently enjoyed. Um, I think this is a really important record in their discography, not just as a as an odd document of their career, and and I guess it's overlooked because it's a it's an EP from an era where the EP was either like the first thing you did or and, and you know, basically, was you were too ashamed to just call it your demo. Um, 
<laughs> you know, you didn't want to limit yourself in that way or was just a promotional tool and was like, here are three songs that are going to be on the album, maybe one extra song. Yeah, that's that's so that's, that's such a a great point that you're both bringing up. I I'm struggling to think of other EPs that were artistic statements the way that this one is. That's really what it is. This is this is clearly a record that has a very specific sonic palette. They went for a very specific producer to try to achieve, you know, uh, something that they had in mind. The songs uh, sort of stick together so well as five songs that the record makes perfect sense as a document. All five songs are great. Um, and it's like, how many other EPs can I think of where the band was that sort of uh, deliberate or, or didn't treat it like, you know, uh, either a collection of leftovers or, you know, as you were saying, sort of a demo, a first release where you can see the band's still sort of trying to, to figure out exactly what they sound like. Um, it's... You know, it's, it's a pretty short list of releases that I think um, do the specific thing that this record is doing. Um, and it's it's funny. The only time I've ever seen this uh, EP in stores was the time I bought it. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think it... it I'm, I'm not sure how wide a release it got, um, which is which is a bummer because it's brilliant. The, the only EPs that I can think of, like... I would say the Fugazi, the first two Fugazi EPs. Yeah. And even those, I mean, like, you could definitely, you know, qualify those by saying, like, well, those were the first things they did. You know, they were kind of functionally demos, but I think they were, they were put together by experienced musicians who had released multiple records up to that point. I think they were making an artistic point of releasing EPs. Yeah. Um, man, but not... I really can't think of... Yeah, sort of thing like, like that last Rites of Spring release was an EP, but that sort of feels like they were kind of just releasing that to sort of release everything they had left. It just so happened mm-hmm. that those songs worked together so well, but I don't think it was, let's make this short release and have it be this, you know, tight, cohesive thing. I think it just so happened that it, it uh, you know, the release ended, ended up being that. Yeah, there's the... The Dillinger Escape Plan, Mike Patton EP. Mm. That's definitely it's important. Fits important for them. The mold like it was. They made it. They had specific artistic goals that limited it to being such a small release. But you almost yeah. give it a different kind of. But it's a collaboration. It's yeah. a collaboration record. You know, it's a little different. I don't know. This is a man. That's a really interesting. I mean, the, funny, like, the funny thing is, it's it's longer than either of the full lengths we've put out. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you know, it's that that sort of <laughs> how we define an EP versus an LP, I suppose, is in the eye of the beholder to a certain extent. But yeah, it's it's a it's a, it's its own really interesting genre of release. That that um, I wonder if I feel like Bell and Sebastian might have their share. I think they have a, yeah. a few EPs that are in that line and I was thinking kind of the My Bloody Valentine EPs yeah. Glider and Tremolo being they're kind of they're in between records they're not like early records early EPs mm. and they don't feel like they don't feel like B material definitely yeah but it, it is a neat idea of we have this concept or we have this sound or we have this direction we're thinking about going in we're going to make a smaller record to try it out either to sort of make sure that we document this moment in our history or 
you know, to sort of get started on sort of a larger project of, you know, we're going to keep pursuing this. Um, it's such a such an interesting um, form of release in that way. Yeah, I feel like, man, I feel like that's just, I'm going to be like digging on this concept for days now, like trying to think of like records, EPs that fit this particular mold, because it's pretty few and far between. I mean, yeah. And I mean, punk... I think a lot of the records, the EPs that you're going to come up are going to feel like they fit that requirement, I feel like are going to be punk records. And there are certainly like limitations that kind of dictated the, the necessity for releasing an EP. Like, this is all we could afford to record. Yeah. That, you know, yeah. might, yeah, you yeah. know, you might exclude certain releases because it's like, well, this is clearly just like an extended single, but you might say like, Buzzer Howl by the Minutemen that feels like they put everything they wanted on that EP but also had like to work within a very economical budget so <laughs> yeah definitely oh um there's one other one that occurred to me uh yeah Safety Second Body Last by The Locust mm-hmm. okay is, yeah is, is one because it's doing something really deliberate where there's like two minutes of, of what we associate with the locusts that sort of, you know, out of control synth punk hardcore thing and then there are these extended sort of minimalist electronic passages where they, they clearly thought, alright, this EP is going to do this and because it's an EP it can do this I think it was maybe released the same year <laughs> Which and there's an interesting connection because a couple members of um, uh the locusts were in Headwound City with uh, with Nick Zinner from right. Yeah Yeah Yeahs. Okay, it was actually a couple years earlier, but yeah, yeah. That more, um, I'm sure. Like Isis had something like that where it was like a four track thing. That, but Isis song, songs are so yeah, it was long probably too, thirty five minutes long though. Yeah, <laughs> but it could have been treated in like this is a statement. Because I could see that band doing that too, yeah. Or like even any of those Justin Broderick bands. Like I feel like those all have that kind of stuff. Hmm. Wow, that's a really fun idea. I'm gonna have to mm. like really dig and find some more stuff that fits that definition. Yeah, it's sort of it's almost surprising that that hasn't become more popular because it seems like it's either. I feel like the things that have happened since the the album is a physical object has has been a little less of sort of the the standard. You've either had like sort of an endless stream of singles, or just you know uh, traditional albums, or albums that sort of keep changing even after they've been released. Um, so it seems to either be sort of larger versions of typical forty-minute albums, or the, you know just a song from time to time. Yeah, or yeah, the re-release with like four more tracks. You know. <laughs> yeah, or like changed track orders yeah i mean i understand the temptation to be like all right well i've sat with this for three months there is no actual physical object there's nothing stopping me from updating it to something i think works better as as an artist but um you know it is certainly something that's only been possible for the last five years maybe a little longer i guess but recent history yeah yeah the the only opportunities you would have to do that in the past would have been like you're a uk band and you get to change the track order for the u.s release and then even in that case the label probably did that the band didn't necessarily oh, yeah. even Absolutely. have much input 
Yeah, that happened. Like all those all those Beatles albums that just got yeah chopped up. That happened all the time with like UK punk records too. Like when it would come to the states, they'd be like, mm, "This isn't pop heavy enough. Give me well, some the, of your B sides. We're gonna take two songs off and yeah, reorder the, it." Mean, the Clash by the Clash. I mean, yeah, just getting completely chopped up. That's the example I was gonna three. Was gonna you know, like to. two or three years after the album even originally came out. Yeah, because it yeah, it was. For- and it was like one of the because that record was one of the most popular imports of all time, so yeah, people had already heard it by the time it came out in the states with its new order. People go, "What is this? What did you do to it?" <laughs> yeah, I grew up listening to the to the U.S. version where Clash City Rockers is the first song. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I didn't I didn't really consistently listen to the the proper U.K. track listing until they put out that box set about. About a decade ago, maybe a little less. Yeah. Um, and even now, I'm so used to that album starting out the the U.S. like the U.S. version with Clash City Rockers. It still takes. Yeah. Is it is it is it Janie Jones mm-hmm. that begins the, the the U.K. version? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm just so used to the other. <laughs> yeah, the one we just talked about on our show that we posted the day we're recording the Pylon record that we did. There's like a reissue in like '88 where they take the first track off of the B side and swap it out with an entirely different track, and it's like, mm. I mean, I get it's, why because that one song that they had on there was like abrasive, like purposefully abrasive, and I'm sure the label was like, "Hey, uh, can we swap this out?" You know, <laughs> right? We don't want to start the side with this, you know? Yeah, because <laughs> then it becomes in that era, you're like, "Well, I'm not flipping this record." I know what it starts with over there. <laughs> yeah, so true. <laughs> uh, that's a well. That's we're probably getting way off track, but that starts another conversation of what are A side only records. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they exist. The classic top heavy record. Yeah, there are some of those. I think it was very more. It was. It might have been more common in the states. Because that's what they would always do with those when they would get the stuff from overseas. They would reorder and put all the hits at the top, and then the B side's yeah. like, "It's all right." <laughs> you didn't. You didn't. We have a phrase that we say on the show: sequencing is crucial. And if you make it too top heavy, then the back half people aren't going to finish it. So, give them enough reasons to stick around for the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Well, I think uh, I have said all I have about this EP. Uh, is there any final thoughts you want to share about it? Um, let's see. I, I, you know, I do think it tends to be the, the release by yeah, 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 that gets the least amount of attention. So I, I strongly recommend it. Um, you know, I think, uh, any, any fans of perennial who haven't listened to yeah, yeah, please do. And this one might be a cool one to start with. Um, if, you know, uh, if you dig what perennial does, um, because this one was, seriously influential to us yeah it's a good one to it is a good one to start with because it feels almost like a primer like here's what you're in for with them yeah there's there's stuff there's stuff that they that you can sort of uh you know draw a line back to fever to tell and show your bones um you know there's there are things that 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 get explored on those records that either you know are echoed by this or or that this one sort of tries out that gets developed more later so it's it's in a cool spot in their discography as well Mm -hmm. dylan any final thoughts i think i've got i think i've said everything cool well chad thank you so much for doing the show with us uh 
this is a really cool record to talk about. Um, very happy to have you on. Yeah, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, tell everyone where to get a hold of the record, follow the band online, all that good stuff. Sure. So uh, the best place to find, listen to, buy the record is our Bandcamp. So that's uh, perennialtheband.bandcamp.com. Uh, we're also on iTunes, Apple Music, and Tidal. Uh, so if you want to just stream it, you can you can find the record there. Um, and then we're on uh, Instagram. That's also perennial the bands. Uh, was that a conscious choice not to use Spotify specifically? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I got it, the impression it, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's, you got to live with yourself. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, totally understandable. Yeah. Um, bad company. Well, yeah. yeah you know. <laughs> If, if, if a bunch of things change, um, including who uh, who receives a lot of the money that should be going to artists, yeah. um, maybe we'll think about it, but yeah, for now it doesn't look like any changes are being made, so we're happy to, uh, to direct people towards Bandcamp, who are more responsible and responsive in a reconceivable way. Yeah. Plus... You know, you can listen to a record what three times on Bandcamp before it starts giving you the like the prompt to be like, "Hey, you should probably buy it." And if you're listening to a record more than three times, you probably should be buying it anyway. So, <laughs> go ahead and buy a copy. Yeah, we keep prices reasonable yeah. uh, in the perennial organization as well. So, <laughs> and it, you know, if if you want to copy the album and and money is tight, which you know we totally get, just email us; we'll send it to you. <laughs> Well, I'll include show, uh, links in the show notes to all that. Um, and the very last thing we always ask our guests to do is uh, shout out a charity or a nonprofit. Um, because we were doing this for a little while because we were like, this seems like the thing to do. And then kind of got away from it. And then just it did feel right to not do it anymore. So we're bringing it back. But uh, do you have any in particular you'd like to name? Yeah. So so I'll name two. Um, one, one uh, you know, the importance of this one is is only obvious right now with, with where we're at, unfortunately, but that's the uh, National Network of Abortion Funds. Um, it, it helps folks get access, in particular, uh, in states and communities where that access is severely lacking, particularly now. So the National Network of Abortion Funds. Uh, and then uh, the Humane Society. Hmm. Yeah. Those be the two I'll mention. Yeah, both very important. Very important there. Um, I'll include links to those as well in the show notes. But Excellent. All right. Thank you so much for doing the show. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. I had a great time. This was a blast. <laughs>